Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I'm joined by Damien Heath. Hello. Cameron Crothers isn't with us today because he didn't get enough attention as a child. (laughs) So every October we celebrate Halloween by profiling a great horror film. Last year we tangoed with an American werewolf in London and this year we're taking Toby Hooper's Poltergeist out for a spin. You know what's interesting, Damien, is when we announced Poltergeist, it was August 26th. And the same day in America, which was the following day for us, Toby Hooper died. Mm. And do you remember that happened to us with Hannah and her sisters? Yeah, with Carrie Fisher. Are we killing celebrities, do you think? Possibly. With our film choices? Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if we wield that much power. Well, yeah, we are pretty powerful. What kind of disturbances? I don't know whatever's over this house. Speaking of jinxes, a lot of people will know that Poltergeist comes with its own lore about being cursed. Several people involved with the movie died prematurely, including Heather O'Rourke, the little girl who plays Carol Ann. She went into cardiac arrest at the age of 12 after a misdiagnosed intestinal issue. By then, she'd managed to appear in two of the sequels. And the actress Dominique Dunn, who plays her older sister, was strangled to death in her driveway by a crazed ex-boyfriend five months after the film was released. There are a few other misfortunes associated with this film, and we'll post a link to the E! True Hollywood Story episode on this if you want to know more. But we aren't going to get too much into that because it's not really what our show is about. No, and, uh, you know, as you know, curses probably aren't real. (laughs) So, you know, all of this is just pure coincidence. Wow. You're such a pragmatist, ain't you? Yes. Well, also, poltergeists aren't real. I mean, how do you explain the Superman stuff? (laughs) That's all been pretty awful. Look at Margot Kidder. You're telling me that's not a tragedy? When Steven Spielberg first sat down to write the treatment for the movie that would become Poltergeist, it was intended as a loose sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Entitled Nighttime, it was a dark tale about a group of aliens that terrorise a family living in rural America. Spielberg was about to start principal photography on E.T., and a clause in his universal contract prevented him from directing another film until then. So he approached Toby Hooper, whom he'd met after he saw and was impressed by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He asked Hooper to direct Nighttime with Spielberg to act as his producer. 
Hooper was excited to collaborate with Spielberg but wasn't interested in doing an alien movie. After geeking out over their love of Robert Wise's 1963 classic The Haunting, they reworked the treatment into a ghost story. The script went through several rewrites by a number of writers, most of whom went uncredited. They brought the property to MGM, who greenlit the project with a 9.5 million budget. The total cost would ultimately blow out to 10.8 million. A third of the budget was spent on the film's ambitious special effects. An elaborate set was built 10 feet off the ground to allow room for all of the effects machinery and to accommodate the final scene where the Freeling family are besieged by a series of coffins that shoot up through the floor. Over 100 special and optical effects were included in the film care of George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic Company. With shot-for-shot storyboards detailing the film from start to finish, principal photography began in May 1981 in Los Angeles and lasted 12 weeks. And here is where the production history of Poltergeist becomes murky. Speculation that Spielberg was actually directing the film emerged before the film had even been released. Having received word that an impending director's strike might delay production on E.T., some have suggested that Spielberg took over, not wanting his screenplay to be compromised by a director who was not in his league. Cast and crew have conflicting stories about what the dynamic was like on set. Some maintain that Hooper was the captain. Others claim he took a back seat and allowed Spielberg to call the shots while others have suggested that Spielberg took over because Hooper proved to be an ineffectual decision-maker and even a substance abuser. Rumours of cocaine use on the Poltergeist set have persisted for years. Producer Frank Marshall claims that Hooper handed in his cut of the film on October 17, 1981 and had no further post-production involvement with the movie until a re-edited version was screened in April 1982. But more on the Spielberg-Hooper controversy later. Released on the 4th of June 1982, Poltergeist was an immediate hit for MGM, grossing over $120 million worldwide, and was enthusiastically received by critics. It was nominated for three Academy Awards for its sound editing, visual effects and original score, and appears on several notable best films of all time lists. It spawned two sequels and a remake in 2015. For all of the messiness that clouded its production, the final product is a surprisingly cohesive and very entertaining genre classic that remains a favourite among moviegoers more than 25 years later. Damien, what do you think of Poltergeist? Yeah, it was released June 4. I would just like to point out that it was released about 24 hours before I was born. Poltergeist? <laughs> so, wow. you know, just, just in keeping with uh, the whole horror history of my name and me and my creation and all of that kind of stuff, you know. I'm, I'm named after The Omen and Poltergeist was released 24 hours before I was born. So I just feel like there is kismet. So that pleases you. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But that said, Poltergeist has never been my favourite horror movie or really close to it. It's um, it's a movie that I enjoy. I think it's got some really good good stuff in it. Um, But I guess it's always had that Spielberg feel to it. And I'm not the biggest fan of that. Never have been. What don't you like about the Spielberg feel? It feels too glossy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the, some of my favourite horror movies are The Hills Have Eyes, you know, from nineteen from four years before this. And that's a gritty, real... Adult, brutal. Yeah, it is. Uh, and not, not so much about the gore, but even just about, I guess, the imperfections with uh, with the directing with the filming with the you know the film stock that was used and the grain and all of that kind of stuff and it looks less glossy it looks unvarnished it does yeah and and the majority of horror movies that I like I like that 
Mm. And that's why I, I don't think I've ever really responded too much to Poltergeist, which is funny to say because I respond to the James Wan films. I really like those these days. And if there's any film that feels like Poltergeist, it's Insidious to me. Absolutely. In fact, I think that Poltergeist is kind of a prototype for the modern ghost horror film. Absolutely, yep. It is, um, yeah, you get the conjuring. I mean, a lot of those James Wan kind of films come out of films like The Poltergeist. And Insidious to the, is to the point where it even follows the basic story of Poltergeist the whole way through. And, I mean, I know we'll get into the sequels and the remake, but the remake is, I guess, even less necessary with a film like Insidious that was, that was produced less than five years earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for me, I mean, I always loved Poltergeist. You know that it's just been a kid obsession movie for me. I saw it when I was really young. It was probably one of my first experiences with horror. So I was just wide-eyed and so excited and thrilled by it. Spielberg is very good at giving us something very familiar and very likable. You know, you have, like, this middle-class family. They're all lovely. The kids are really natural and cute. I mean, the minute that it starts, the film, and you've got that guy on the bike with the beers and those two racing cars that make him fall off his bike, that's such a Spielbergian street. And it's such a Spielbergian yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah, to, to take, uh, I guess, a lot of what happened in the 70s was these backwoods, you know, hick families. Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Hills Have Eyes and so many so many of the other things that, um, that had been done by those directors, Toby Hooper and Wes Craven, mm. um, Sean Cunningham and John Carpenter. A lot of that stuff had not been set in a modern community. And a lot of what I read about this film was that it took the ghost story out of the gothic mansions and it put it in the modern, mm. conventional kind of... Typical American suburbia. family home. Yeah. And, you know, that's what Spielberg does better than anybody. Mm-hmm. He, 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 he transplants these huge ideas into something that you can... Uh, that becomes universal for the viewer. Yeah, absolutely, because you so easily put yourself in this family's shoes. And it's funny that already... We're talking about Spielberg and Hooper and <laughs> juxtaposing those two. I mean, or conflating those two. Yeah. Poltergeist, I think there's a lot to like about it. I think, I feel like when you talk about, you know, your reaction to Poltergeist, either you were a Spielberg child or you weren't, and I wasn't, and yeah. you were. Very true. You were James Cameron. <laughs> yeah, I did. I prefer James Cameron. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get, get one of his uh, movies on the podcast one day. So with Poltergeist, within about 15 minutes of the film, we love these people. And the film works very hard to make us love them. You know, we get those really cute scenes where she's like, oh, Tweety, couldn't you have waited until a school day? Um, you know, we get the girl going, for when he's lonely and for when it's nighttime. But also, not only does the film want us to love them, it just wants us to uh, to view them as normal. There's nothing abnormal happening in the first 15 minutes of this movie. No. Nothing at all. It's just a typical... Typical day in that moving day in their lives. Yeah. Mm. And also uh, we get some unexpected moments in the film, like the parents smoking pot, which obviously we wouldn't get in a modern film today because people cannot correlate um, casual pot smokers with responsible parenting. Mm. Whereas in the 80s, I think we had a, a freer sense. We didn't always link our behaviour to character, which is interesting. And also, I guess, 1982, we're, we're, we're not far removed from... The loose, groovy era of the 70s. That's true. Yeah. We're not. Absolutely. Um, and then, of course, when she first finds that there's this sort of... And Spielberg was part of that era. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... and I'm sure Toby Hooper was part of that era. <laughs> and if they were snorting cocaine between takes, then yeah. no wonder they had loose attitude to drugs. Well, pot's nothing, really. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
But um, And then, of course, when this paranormal activity begins, when she finds this space in her kitchen where things are being moved with the chairs, her reaction and, is... And that starts so simply in this movie by just the chairs being a foot back from the table. Yeah. And she has no fear. She's thrilled. She's elated. She's excited. She tells her husband, remember when we were young, open up your mind to when, when we were open-minded. Is it Paranormal Activity that takes a lot of that kitchen stuff, one of the Paranormal Activity films? I think it does, but that's a good example of a film where there's immediate fear. There is no sense of... That's right. And, you know, I actually, I wrote a review of the modern-day Poltergeist on my letterbox Mm. thing, and someone commented on there, because I'd written that I really liked that the original Poltergeist have the family have this initially receptive reaction to what's going on. Yeah. And somebody wrote, well, I didn't believe that. He said, in the original. I, yeah, he right. said, I did not believe that they would have such a... She would be so... When Craig T. Nelson comes in, or Steve, he's a little bit more cautious. But she's a lot more like... Whoa, he is, exciting. but I mean, I feel like if he was really cautious, he probably wouldn't let his daughter slide along the kitchen floor. So even he is open to it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, in the remake, they're not like that at all. No, that's right. Yeah. So we get these this first 15 or 30 minutes of this film. Except, and then... except in the remake, there is that... That little bit where they introduce the paranormal activity by having um, Maddie's her name. She's the Carol Ann in the remake. Having her touch the uh, door handle on the built-in robe in her bedroom and her hair stands on it and she thinks it's hilarious. So the kids love that idea at the start of the remake which kind of ties into the start of the original but it's only the kids, not the parents. Yeah, whereas in this film we get... Carol Ann being very excited to have friends coming, speaking to her through the television, and the parents. And the parents. But then what happens after about half an hour is something terrifying. Um, You know, the family unit is compromised. Carol Ann's been snatched from her home. She's held captive in a spiritual dimension that hovers over the house or is somehow parallel to the house. And she can only communicate through a frequency on the family's television set. And for me, this is where the emotional core of the film is. It's in those exchanges between Diane and Carol Ann. Do you feel like Diane and Carol Ann, for me, they are the centre of the original Poltergeist? Absolutely. The main characters. I feel like the rest of them are kind of pushed to the background, especially the brother and the older sister. Well, certainly, yeah. Almost not present. No, the older sister especially, (laughs) because she leaves and... But even there's nothing that happens only to the brother. Um, Well, he does get eaten by the carnivorous tree and the clown attacks him. So he's in two of the really kind of iconically frightening moments of the film. But but definitely when you think of Poltergeist, you think of Diane looking around the house and speaking to her daughter and hearing Carol Ann's voice come back and being aware that something is in there with her. Yeah. And that is frightening. The idea that she's within reach in terms of sound and communication but not physically within reach is a really compelling kind of push for the film. Yeah. And they do go into a little bit of that in the remake um, by having this, I guess, uh, overlaid visual of... uh, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call it The Other Side, which is the name of the sequel for the original. They they have the the, the current real world that all of us live in and The Other Side overlaid, and they're the same place. They're the same house. Yeah. So I guess that's not really explained so much in the original film. We don't know where this other side is. No, and that, I think, is better, that we never see it. So our imagination, it's exactly the same tactic used in Jaws. You know, you don't see what's under the water. Mm. So you're, you're terrified because your mind posits all kinds of horrors. Yeah. I mean, even though all throughout the original Pulse Guys, all I want to do is I want to see the other side. 
Yeah. Don't you? But I mean, yeah, you do. That's true. Um, I think when you get the door opening and that huge raft of light and you get the skull face coming through at Steve, you do get enough of it. And certainly um, the second real climax. And there you do really get to see the horrors of the other side when you see the corpses coming out of the ground and yeah. the monsters and everything. But I mean, the thing about Poltergeist for me is that despite its dark themes, like keeping a child as young as Carol Ann, um, you know, in this other world away from her parents, the carnivorous tree, the air rape of Diane, there's this real sense of optimism that perpetuates the film and you feel like the film has all of its chips on the side of the family. So it's it really ups its rewatchability. The, there's jeopardy there, real jeopardy. But don't you feel like this film is just so optimistic and cheerful? Yeah, it is. And there's also this underlying understanding that there is no death. There is something else on the other side. Yes. That thought in itself is optimistic. Yeah, and I think that's where uh, where it differs from a lot of those late 70s horror movies. Where the, there's just bleak. The new Hollywood. Uh, it even differs a lot from, I guess, the stuff that was to follow in the 80s. I mean, the slasher genre was becoming big around this time. Yeah. It had been big in the last couple, in the couple of years beforehand, but... Even the cartoonish, clownish kind of horror movies that were to come throughout the 80s, um, Poltergeist kind of stands alone. It does. Yeah. It's sort of taken on a life of its own. You know, even modern audiences today still love and remember Poltergeist in a way that they don't films like the original Hills Have Eyes. Well, that's bizarre. Because the original Hills Have Eyes is a masterpiece. But I think it's because it's uh, Poltergeist is more mainstream. It's easier to... You I know, feel like there's not many films around from that time that are like Poltergeist, and there is a lot of films around that time that tried to be like The Hills Have Eyes. Yeah, that's and probably And The Last true. House on the Left and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they all had sequels and yeah. you know so on and so forth. So I guess Poltergeist uh, and, the, and the fact that someone as mainstream as Steven Spielberg was involved with it. Yeah, because you can talk about someone like Wes Craven being mainstream, but he—he, he, I mean, he really wasn't. Yeah, he—he he made the nightmares and uh, he made Scream, but that was really about it in terms of mainstream films for him. And they certainly weren't trying to be commercial. No, they just caught on to the zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. Um, Poltergeist is—I always kind of compare it in my mind to Gremlins in tone. I think that's fair. Hmm. Yeah, um, Gremlins is a surprisingly dark film. And Poltergeist is, whenever I watch it, it's darker than I remember it being because I always think of it as pretty light. Yeah. And that's the same for Gremlins. Yep. I grew up loving Gremlins and didn't grow up loving Poltergeist. Just grew up accepting Poltergeist is out there and it's a fun film. Well, we'll do Gremlins one month. I don't know if Gremlins has as much, you know, creative cachet. <laughs> <laughs> A rumour about the 1982 supernatural horror classic Poltergeist appears to have been confirmed. Director John Leonetti gave a first-hand account of whether Toby Hooper, the person listed as the director, actually helmed the film. The style of the movie has fostered suspicions that Poltergeist producer-writer Steven Spielberg was really in control. I think it's interesting that this has been going for three and a half decades. I know. Yeah. Like, after three and a half decades, it got a lot of traction a few months ago because the assistant cameraman came out and said that um, he had proof that it was Spielberg who had directed it, and his proof was a photo. And uh, in this photo, it had him, his name's John Leonetti, and his brother, who was the cinematographer for Poltergeist, Matthew Leonetti. They were standing there behind their cameras, and in the middle of them was Toby Hooper standing behind a camera, and behind him was Steven Spielberg pointing. That's his proof. 
But that doesn't seem like proof to me. No, it doesn't. Of, no, <laughs> of uh, anything. Just quickly, John Leonetti, who's the guy who said this, he directed uh, Annabelle a few years ago, oh, yeah. which sucked ass. Yeah. Um, and he was also the DP on The Mask, The Scorpion King, and then with James Wan, Insidious 1 and 2, and The Conjuring. So, all right, let's go back to June 1982, Poltergeist is released. A month before that, in May of 1982, an article was published in the LA Times and it had a quote from Spielberg. This is what launched all of the debate and rumours surrounding who directed Poltergeist. I'm just going to read you part of what he told an interviewer. Toby isn't what you'd call a take-charge sort of guy. He's just not a strong presence on a movie set. If a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump up and say what we could do. Toby would not agreement, and that became the process of the collaboration. I felt a, propri- a proprietary interest in the project that was stronger than if I was just executive producer. I thought I'd be able to turn Poltergeist over to a director and walk away. I was wrong. On future films, if I write it myself, I'll direct it myself. I won't put someone else through what I put Toby through, and I'll be more honest in my contributions to a film. What happened then, um, this triggered the Directors Guild of America to conduct an investigation because he would be in breach of contract if it turned out he did it. Well, not only that, but the Directors Guild of America has to uphold the credits that are on a film. So not, not, nothing, not only about Spielberg and his contract, but also the credit on the film. Right. So um, Spielberg then released an open letter to Toby Hooper saying that essentially his comments to the LA Times had been misunderstood that Hooper was indeed given freedom to direct the film and, you know, wishes him every success in the future, blah, blah. That was on the 2nd of June. Then on the 21st of June, Spielberg wrote a letter to Time magazine clarifying that Hooper and Hooper alone was the sole director of the film. And uh, what we get after that is years and years of different people weighing in cast and crew with their own opinions. So Hooper responded and somebody, I, I think it was about 10 years ago, said to him, can you finally set the record straight about who directed Poltergeist? And he said, well, I've been setting the record straight for two decades. I can't set it any straighter. But basically what happened is the LA Times rocked up um, to do an article on the film and I was out in the um, in the backyard doing the pool sequences and Steven Spielberg was doing second uh, second unit directing stuff in the front yard they interviewed Steven and by that time I think he'd uh, Toby Hooper had finished filming his shot looked like he was doing nothing by the time the LA Times got round to the back and that's where a lot of that conjecture came from how it was portrayed in the LA Times as well so that was Hooper's response that he was doing different work Steven Spielberg was just doing the second unit stuff at that time which happens on every film but don't you think it's strange so many of the cast and crew have subsequently come out and said either they never met Toby Hooper? Look, I think, yes, it's strange. But also the fact that the cast and crew can't even determine who was the director on this film in amongst themselves. I mean, if, it, if there was absolute truth to the fact that Steven Spielberg directed this film, there would be 100% of cast and crew willing to say that Steven Spielberg directed this film. Yeah, possibly. Although I think some people have probably been a little not intimidated, but maybe feel a little intimidated to be honest. Let's just yeah. let's just talk about okay, so Joe Beth Williams who plays Diane, she said Spielberg was there every day, but you felt he had and you felt he had the say, the final say about everything. Craig T. Nelson maintains that Toby Hooper was the director, but that he was pushed out of the picture having turned in his cut. Zelda Rubenstein, who's uh, Tangina, the psychic, said Spielberg directed all six days that she was on set. Uh, and that was because Toby Huber allowed some unacceptable chemical agents into his work. This is where the cocaine allegations began. 
Sound mixer Bill Varney, Toby didn't participate at all. Mike Fenton, casting director, Toby didn't direct the film as far as I saw. Jerry Goldsmith, the composer, only worked with Spielberg, never met Hooper. Frank Marshall, producer, said Spielberg was the creative force behind the film, which is, you know, typically ambiguous for a producer. And uh, the little boy who plays Robbie says that Hooper directed the actors. Yeah, and, and that's probably what happened. I mean, the fact that he wasn't involved with Jerry Goldsmith, I don't think that means anything. Spielberg was the producer. I think it's pretty universally accepted that when Hooper turned in his cut, he had nothing more to do with the movie yeah. until it was released. And I think even Hooper would say that. So the fact that all of this post-production stuff, sound mixing, the com- composition of the score was done without Hooper involved and these people never saw Hooper, never heard from Hooper. There was even, I guess, rumours that Hooper was in drug rehab after immediately following the shoot of Poltergeist. I would believe that, that Spielberg took over post-production completely, 100%. <laughs> I mean, look, the quote from John Leonetti, he was on a podcast in July, it was called Shockwaves, and he said, candidly, ca- sorry, candidly, Steven Spielberg directed that movie, there's no question, Hooper was so nice and just happy to be there. <laughs> Which is incredibly insulting Mm. and uh, look he said that what a couple of months before Hooper ended up passing away but then he said he had that proof which was that photo which is as far as I'm concerned bullshit well look when you think about it if we put ourselves in 1982 right Spielberg has had enormous success for seven eight years since Jaws he's had Indiana Jones he's had all these huge hits Toby Hooper's had what he's had Texas Chainsaw Massacre and he got, I guess, a little bit of cred for the Salem's Lot miniseries because some people like that. But that was it. Yes. It stands to reason that he would feel a little bit uh, intimidated by Spielberg. So you can imagine if you've got these two on the set that he would occasionally defer to or feel like he couldn't impose upon Spielberg because Spielberg is this institution. If you look at the film, if we take all of this conjecture and he said, she said away, and you look at Poltergeist, does it look more like E.T.? Or does it look more like Texas Chainsaw and Eaten Alive? It it looks far more like a Steven Spielberg movie. Doesn't it? Yeah. Toby Hooper was there. Toby Hooper was making a contribution. I think um, ultimately Steven Spielberg had a lot of power, had a lot of power back then. And sounds like he was the writer from hell. You know, there's all these ideas that the writer can't let their film go and that's why they're not allowed on set. So it sounds like Spielberg was like that. But ultimately he had more power than just a writer because he was also the producer. He was also a, you know, very high grossing director. So he was able to take over. Mm. It does feel weird to say Toby Hooper directed Poltergeist. It's a Toby Hooper film. Do you know what I think the problem is, is that we want a black and white answer to something that is just absolutely grey. Yeah. It was a collaboration. How even that collaboration was, I don't think we'll ever know. No. Certainly there are moments in Poltergeist that feel darker than anything Spielberg would put on film. Maybe he used Toby as a proxy for putting those things on film because he didn't want his name his name attached to it. And, you know, there's, I don't know if you read, but there's another theory that the studio was worried about releasing Poltergeist, which was essentially a family-friendly horror film, with the name of the guy who directed Texas Chainsaw. And so the studio propagated the myth that Spielberg had directed it so that parents would take their kids to see it. Yeah, that's interesting. So I just need to tell you something about the development of the Poltergeist script because this is really interesting. So Hmm. Spielberg is listed as one of three writers for the film. 
now he, as I said in the beginning, he initially wrote the, the script as a loose sequel to Close Encounters about evil aliens. When Hooper got involved, um, he wasn't into the alien idea. He suggested they make it about ghosts. The script was initially titled Nighttime and was passed on to about eight writers and underwent several rewrites. Stephen King was apparently approached to rewrite the script, but MGM balked at his at the huge sum of money he asked for. So the script was originally written by... Spielberg. The story, or the treatment, I think was originally was written treatment. by Spielberg. Yeah, you're right. The script was then written by two guys, Grays and Victor. Yeah. Now, Richard Matheson of The Twilight Zone has gone on record to say that Spielberg actually lifted the central premise uh, of Poltergeist from an episode called Little Girl Lost, but that Spielberg never gave credit to Matheson and tried to smooth it over years later by offering him another writing gig. Toby Hooper remained in the background while this whole writing process was going on, adding bits and pieces, but he never received a writing credit. MGM have also been accused of shutting down production on a TV movie being made at the time, which featured a set piece where a ghostly hand emerges from a TV screen. On top of all of this, a young writer named Paul Clemens filed a $37 million lawsuit against Spielberg and MGM, claiming that Spielberg had plagiarised from a script he'd submitted to Spielberg's production company Amblin Entertainment a year before. This script was called Housebound, which he'd registered with the Writers Guild in 1979. Housebound was a haunted house story about a young girl who gets trapped somewhere inside a house and can be heard calling out to her family for help. It's discovered that the property was built on top of a swamp where people had died under mysterious circumstances, and in the finale their bodies come crashing up through the floorboards. The script also includes a carnivorous tree and a room that turns into a giant throat, sucking things from outside into it. The lawsuit dragged on for a number of years until the plaintiffs allegedly settled for an undisclosed sum of money days before the case was set to go to trial. So there's so much... That is very fascinating. I didn't know any of that. So there's so much like dirty business around Poltergeist, isn't there? Who directed it? Who wrote it? In 2007, Poltergeist was re-released for its 25th anniversary in part to promote the remastered special edition DVD that was being prepared by Warner Brothers, uh, who had brought the film from MGM. Bought the film, I should say. A two-disc set was going to include a making of, reminiscences from the actors, commentaries, deleted scenes. You know we're going to get this really nice DVD package packed with features. Now, reports have circulated that Spielberg, Hooper and Craig T. Nelson, who Warner's contacted, refused to be involved. Spielberg's PR people denied they'd received any such request. The DVD of the remastered film finally emerged without the 25th anniversary special edition title and just includes one terrible documentary about true poltergeist incidents that is totally unrelated to the film. And there are all these rumours circulating that the reason we never got this uh, this release was because uh, Spielberg's legal team didn't want it coming out because it would just essentially raise this question again about who directed the film and potentially get him in hot water if it was established that he'd done it. Mm. I wonder if it would still get him in hot water these days with Toby Hooper having passed on. I don't know. If news came out that he had directed it. I have to say my favourite moment from Poltergeist has always been the moment where... I mean, look, I've got several, but one of the moments that I think is the most thrilling is where Tangina sits down with the family and tells them what is going on. Mm. I think that is the... For me, that's always been the centrepiece of this movie. You know, it starts off where she gives this beautiful monologue about life after death and, you know, they live in a perpetual dream state, they're lost and we're going to help them find their way and it's all beautiful. And then it's now get a hold of yourselves. There's something, you know, with her, I've never sensed anything like it. There's one more thing. A terrible presence is in there with her. So much rage. So much betrayal. I've 
never sensed anything like it. I don't know what hovers over this house, but it was strong enough to punch a hole into this world and take your daughter away from you. It keeps Caroline very close to it and away from the spectral light. It lies to her. It says things only a child can understand. It has been using her to restrain the others. To her, it simply is another child. To us, it is the beast. And that camera that just closes up on her face, you know, uh, the performances from Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson when they're listening to that story. You know, I even love the scene where she just runs up the stairs the first time for some reason. She's such a short, funny looking woman. <laughs> the movie really comes alive when she comes into Absolutely. it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, look, the, the ones that are there before, I really love the moment where <laughs> the one guy says, oh, I once filmed this uh, toy truck. Moving across the floor, it took <laughs> seven hours, but I filmed it with time-lapse on my camera. It's incredible. It's uh, indistinguishable to the naked eye. And then they open the door, <laughs> and the room is just alive. Yeah, it's got a great uh, sense of wit, the film. Mm. I love just shortly after that moment where she's like, you know, it's a, there's still a question mark about whether or not the house is haunted, and then a teacup moves across the table. What I mean to say is... <laughs> um, but no, it, it's really funny. I love that. I love the scene where Craig T. Nelson is talking with his boss who takes him up to that hilltop and suggests, you know, this is where... That's one of my favourites as well. I mean, that really is purely an expository scene. It is. Yeah. What makes it work is Craig T. Nelson's performance. Yeah. Which is brilliant. Also, I mean... It's going back to that idea of uh, domestic family American life. Yeah. Um, you get this great scene of Cuesta Verde, which is, you know, in the 80s yuppie lifestyle, this is a dream place to go and live yeah. for a middle-class American family. So you go up there, you go up to the top of this hill, and they don't even show the cemetery at first, but you go up to the top of this hill and you see all of Cuesta Verde down there. And I think, what, they're starting phase four, is it? Or phase yeah. five? Phase five. Yeah, and they're going to be up the top, and that's when he learns about, yeah, the cemetery needs to move. Mm. But he's basically being, um, I guess, bribed to stay in his job as a salesman for the Cuesta Verde developers, the real estate agency, because he's one of the best salespeople. I think, what what was the figure he sold? 42% of I thought it was sales. high. I thought it was like 60-something percent. No. Yeah, a ridiculous amount of the houses that are down in the valley are sold, occupied, because of him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, then you get that reveal. John Kenneth Muir, he's a blogger. He writes about Poltergeist extensively. And he says that the film is a look at the yuppie mentality that pervaded the Reagan era, which stresses the accumulation of personal wealth and the greed is good ideology, which came at the expense of personal morality. That's right. And, uh, you know, Wall Street is the the kind of cherry on top of the Hollywood film industry in the Reagan era. It was released in the same year that Reagan was um, had to finish his... Uh, two terms as president. So uh, everything had kind of built up to that greed is good. Yeah. So he writes, regulations designed to protect consumers were cut. 
big businesses were allowed virtually unencumbered to test the outer limits of the public welfare and good. Here, spectral revenge trickles down upon a suburban family, the aptly named Freelings, who have profited unknowingly from a corrupt system that disenfranchises the many but makes the few obscenely wealthy. And he cites some examples. The poltergeist targets things, furniture, you know, table chairs, things they've purchased. He uh, talks about, you know, obviously you've said Stephen is responsible for the great, you know, great percentage of the uh, the sales in Cuesta Verde. But also how easy it is to say to Stephen, we want you to stay, we'll give you a house yeah. for you to stay. Yeah. You know, like that thing, that house. Yeah. There, that, that's enough to make you stay. That's your goal, isn't it? That's right. And like Jaws, the real villain is the corrupt bureaucracy institution, you know, the mayor that wants to keep the beaches open or the real estate developer that wants to keep building on top of cemeteries. That's right. He also cites a moment where Carol Ann's immediate response after burying her bird is to request a goldfish, which plays into this buy-consume dispense mentality. That was sort of uh, characteristic of the Reagan era. Yeah, that's right. Carol Ann, please tell Mommy hello. Can you say hello to Daddy? Daddy and I miss you so much. So much. We love you so much. Please, just say hello. She's under restraint. What? Who's restraining her? There are many arms about her. She thinks it's safe. Quickly, who is she more threatened by, you or your husband? Neither. Steve decides a punishment. The children are. That's not fair. Write about it later. Stephen, make Carol Ann answer you. Carol Ann? Be cross with her. Daddy. Be angry with her. You'll never see her again. Carol Ann, I want you to answer me. Tell her if she doesn't answer you, she's going to get a spanking. Oh, come on. I've never spanked a children. Honey, please, just tell her. Carol Ann? You answer your parents or you're going to get a real spanking from the both of us. We talked about John Leonetti um, before, but Matthew Leonetti, his brother, was the director of photography for Poltergeist. He had a decent working career without ever being particularly remarkable. Um, In the 1980s, he shot Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Weird Science, Jumpin' Jack Flash, Dragnet and Red Heat. Uh, more recently, he shot the remake of Dawn of the Dead in 2004, and the same year he also did The Butterfly Effect. And uh, I don't have it written here, but I think John Leonetti, his brother, shot The Butterfly Effect too. So they have a strangely comparative career. Um, so look, he's he's very capable technically, but from those credits you wouldn't get the idea that he's a flashy or showy cinematographer. No. Yeah. But Poltergeist might be some of his best work. Mm. It's um, pretty dark moody film especially at the beginning and end and there's some particularly nice shots in those moments um one of the best framed shots for me when carol ann ventures downstairs and sits in front of the television while her dad's passed out you get a a series of different views but i think it it shows a nice um juxtaposition of the typical untidy domestic family life you know there's these parents with kids they 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 have a messy household yeah and they're juxtaposing that with this supernatural happening in their house which nobody can explain and i think that it brings that that idea of the supernatural into the normal everybody is able to relate with having a messy house and falling asleep in front of the tv yeah and the organized chaos of the family yeah yeah yeah. 
Um, I think another great scene is uh, when Diane discovers that there's this spot in the kitchen which results in the objects being dragged across the floor. And then Stephen gets home. She's so excited about it. And she demonstrates it to Stephen. And I guess instead of just showing us, they bring the camera down to the floor and they put it at the spot where this uh, dragging ends. So it's at a bit of a distance and it's down low. And so that works to enhance the action when the chair or... Um, Carol Ann slides directly towards us, directly towards the camera. So there's some really good shots in Poltergeist, and I think the mixture of the colour blue and the white from the static of the TV, there's a there's a real uh, individual kind of colour palette which is uh, easily distinguishable from most movies. Yeah. So it does a really good job of that. That's what I think of when I think of Poltergeist. I think of the colour blue, the white static, the sound of that static, and the echoed sound of voices. Then there's the dolly zoom, when Diane is standing at the end of the hallway, and she's looking at the door, and she needs to get to this door. And the hallway stretches out. And that was done in Jaws. I thought so. The scene where he sees the boy getting attacked. Yeah, he sees the boy getting attacked. He's uh, he's in the boat or... No, he's on the beach. And they were both the same. So we've we've looked at a previous film on this podcast which used the dolly zoom uh, in one of the most famous shots in cinema history and that was Goodfellas. The dolly zoom in Goodfellas is done by zooming in while dollying out. And that brings the background closer. In Poltergeist, it's done by zooming out while dollying in. And what that does is that stretches this hallway... So at the start of this shot, you've got Diane standing there. She's looking at the door. She's got to get to this spot. That's all she's got to do. That's the one thing she's got to do to save her family is get to this door. And then suddenly it stretches and stretches and stretches. And it just makes this, it shows you the impossibility of her task. And it does it in such a simple way. I mean, this is a free special effect. Yeah. It is free to do. All you need to do is move the camera and change the zoom. And yet it's so effective. I mean, the the amount of money that is spent on special effects these days when 30, 40 years ago you had to just do this because this is what you did and it is so much more effective. I mean, can you imagine these days, what would they do? They'd have a hand coming out of the wall and grabbing at her feet and all of this ridiculous CGI. But this here, this shot is so amazing. Yeah, it's one of those instances where uh, I guess either a lack of money or a lack of technology means that you've got to use pure ingenuity. Mm. And then that becomes so much more profoundly affecting than if you had the money to do it digitally. I mean, it's very similar. There's a shot in uh, the original Nightmare on Elm Street, I think, which is very similar to this as well. So, yeah. you know, in in horror f- cinema, this is just a great way to, to, to create some kind of um, us-against-the-odds feeling. <laughs> I love the end of Poltergeist where it gets all completely insane, madcap, body sprouting out, the, yeah. the pool where she's gone in and everything. But do you have a problem with the fact that the family remain in the house after they've got Carol Ann back? Yeah, so what is it? He's um, he, they, they get Carol Ann back and Stephen has gone off to work. Is that right? To tidy up a few things because he's leaving forever. Right, and uh, then they're going to go and stay in a hotel, yes. which leads to that great line from the daughter oh yeah I remember that hotel and uh, Diane says what you know, this implication that she's been there to have sex yes 
yeah, I agree. Why wouldn't you just go somewhere else? Anywhere else. They could just sit in the car for the rest of the day, really. Or they could go to the hotel. I mean, check-in time's, what, 2pm at most hotels? Yeah. I mean, after having gone through what they've gone through, you had to literally go to the other, to a parallel dimension to get their daughter back. Why would you risk her going back into that house for even a moment? No, you wouldn't. No. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. I mean, you know, I, I, I do love the ending. I wish they'd found a way to make it work in a more convincing way narratively. Um, so that sequence, the hallway sequence there that we were just talking about, that comes when Stephen is out of the house. Is that correct? Yeah. So the funniest thing about that is Diane has been all over the house, in the backyard, slipping and sliding around everywhere just before she goes back up there. Mm. I mean, they're always in the house, the kid. So it just feels, I think it feels hilarious that she's going outside, she's doing all of this random stuff, and then she goes back up there. But that adds to the madness. Yeah. I was watching this movie with my dad, and he always laughs at the moment where Diane keeps falling back into the... Hilarious. It is so funny. It is hilarious, and it is also strangely believable. (laughs) Well, that mud's pretty thick. Yeah. Yeah, it would be hard to kind of get purchased to get up. But it's, it's really good. It's lots of fun. I love when, as well, the ending of the film where she's begging Steve to sort out his keys to start the car and he just can't start the car. Come on, come on, start the car. I love that whole moment. I love when um, the sister comes out being dropped off from her boyfriend's and she's got that hickey on her neck and she's like, what's happening? And then the little boy's like, drive away, Dad, drive away. You know, it's very rare that you get a film like this. It's a a horror film. You would have to say it's a horror film. Oh, it's definitely a horror film. But it has that, it just blends that comedy and horror so well. I mean, American Werewolf in London is another example of a film that just does it so beautifully. It's interesting that for our two October films that we've done so far on this show, we've picked uh, films that have a real comedic flair. Yeah, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of horror films on this podcast, so we hope that the horror fans are enjoying that. I think this is about number four or five. Yeah, but I mean, we love them. We're horror guys. Yeah. We just are. We are. Uh, Even Cameron, who's not here. We have not yet talked about, you moved the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies. <laughs> I love that as well. But I mean, isn't it like, you know, Poltergeist is... It is over the top. It's operatic. You know, it's pitched at 10. Yeah. That moment is great when it's like, why? Why? I love that. I think it's fun. Like, it's fun to just get lost in this kind of hyperbole. And let's talk about Craig T. Nelson. Because he is so much fun to watch in this movie. Yeah. He's a perfect dad. He is. He's beautiful. He's such a good representation of the American male father. And I think his relationship with Diane is so spot on. I think so too. I think he and Joe Beth Williams give the performances in the film. Even though I love Zelda Rubenstein, I think that they are the real heart, truth, humanity of the film. Yeah. One of my favourite scenes of the film, which is probably the, one of the most sentimental, mushy parts, but I, I still just love it. I love the idea of it, is when um, the first conversation Diane has with Carol when she's been sucked into the other, and we hear Carol Ann get taken, dragged somewhere. We hear footsteps run along the ceiling of the house. Um, obviously, the beast has her. And um, Diane starts very cautiously up the stairs, and then we get this blow of wind, and then she turns around and she says, she went through me. I can smell her. And she starts to smell her scarf. Um, and she says, she went through my soul, and starts crying. If you are not 
in this family's corner at that point you are after that yeah it's just um it's just a beautiful idea and thought okay so now we've talked about that scene we can move on from the original movie okay so sequels so uh Four years later, 1986, uh, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, came out. It uh, was a moderate box office success. It was made for 19, it grossed double. Didn't do as well as Poltergeist, which is, you know, fair enough. Uh, Did you watch it? Yes. Me too. What did you think? Uh, Yeah, look, I think it's interesting. As far as sequels go, especially four years later, brings back almost all of the original cast. I think Dominique Dunn, obviously, had passed away, so she wasn't able to take part in it. So it did a good job of continuing the story. So it pretty much continues very soon after the original movie um, while adding some new elements. I think they added the uh, Native American stuff, the the cave below the pool. Yeah, with with Will Sampson. Yeah, a a lot of stuff there. They they brought back Zelda Rubenstein because she was obviously one of the stars of the original movie. So do you know that she was actually not written into Poltergeist 2? It was meant to be Beatrice Strait, the first psychic. Right. She declined doing it, so then they changed it well, to Zelda. Thank God. I know. Why would you even make that decision? Yeah. So Beatrice Strait didn't want to do a sequel. Zelda Rubenstein was devastated not to have been re- written into a sequel. So it just perfectly worked out that she got Beatrice Strait's role. I uh, feel like the special effects are pretty shocking in the sequel. Even for the 80s, they, I, I feel like they look reasonably cheap. Somehow, this film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. So <laughs> what do I know? One of my favourite things about this is that it does take place in Cuesta Verde, the, a lot of um, what's happening here. Yeah. So you get this uh, this great sequence at the start of the movie where they're driving through Cuesta Verde. In, this, in the first film, it's this gleaming beacon on the hill. You know, it's the aspiration for all middle-class American families. And by the sequel, it's a ruin. It's covered in dust. It's barely visible as you're driving through the streets. It's like a ghost town. Yeah, it's been completely evacuated at this point. This movie continues on. It changes locations. It presents a new threat. It's it's actually really quite reputable as far as um, as far as eighties movie horror movie sequels go. Oh yeah, look when you compare it to uh, the sequels of Texas Chainsaw or Amityville Horror, it's definitely a cut above those. I think that its biggest strength is the addition of the beast in the form of the actor Julian Beck who plays Reverend Henry Kane. Yeah. He is his scenes are electrifying and he is a terrifying presence. And I was talking to you about a week ago and I said he's like the creepy guy in the street in Willy Wonka. Yeah. <laughs> he is. He is. He's a lot like that. And I love when he grabs little Carol Ann in his first scene he's like, "Are oh, you lost, child?" The the voice, the accent. Are you afraid, honey? Well, why don't you come with me? All right. I'll sing you a song till your mum comes back. God is it, his holy town. And he is completely evil. I mean, his story is that he led his followers into a cave for the end of the world. When the end of the world didn't come, he left them there to die. Yep. I know, it's horrifying. And, you know, in the first film, again, a very Spielbergian thing, we get mentions of this beast. We know he's there, but we never see him. He's never actualised on screen. Poltergeist 2 goes that step further by giving us a face. And, boy, did it pick a good face. Yeah, even though it's a, even though it's a human face. Yeah. I, look, I guess it's a combination of the black 
suit that he wears it's a combination of a whole bunch of factors but certainly he is he is evil in a kind of needful thing Stephen King kind of way as well absolutely and there's that great scene in Poltergeist 2 where he's uh needs to be welcomed into the house and he's uh he's trying to get Steve Stephen to let him in to say yeah come in uh and that scene is perhaps the most tense scene in the film. I think it's the Native Americans he's trying to say are not trustworthy. That's yeah. right. Julian Beck, he uh, he was diagnosed with stomach cancer before the film began. He died shortly after the film came out. After it came out. Oh, okay. I really love uh, Craig T. Nelson in this movie as well. And one of my favourite scenes in there is the scene where uh, Diane starts saying, we've got no money. And he says, well, I'm into downward mobility. <laughs> you know, the freaky frealings out on the road again. The family whose house disappeared. They talk about how no family, and I think this is a great way of bringing in the original film, they talk about how no insurance company will insure them for their house because it's merely missing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really good. You know, that's a great sense of humour. And then we got um, two years after that, Poltergeist 3. Heather O'Rourke and Zelda Rubenstein are the only original cast members to return. It had a budget of $9.5 and it grossed Mm, $14.1 million. Big bomb. Yeah, it was a bomb, and it was totally panned by critics. Have you seen Poltergeist 3? I haven't seen it for a long time. I didn't watch it for this for this podcast. I know it takes place in a uh, high-rise apartment building. Yeah, yep. Um, it's, I saw it in June of this year because I went through the whole Poltergeist series with my mum. Mm-hmm. It is really bad. Mm. Um, I couldn't even bring myself to watch it again for this show. Yeah. I just I, I didn't need to. It doesn't invite anything. It's got um, Tom Selleck and Nancy Allen and the what's her name? O, o- Flynn or something? The the one from Twin Peaks? Oh, Lara Flynn Boyle. Yeah, in a very early performance. But the film um, moving it into the high-rise building, I don't know, it's just a mess. Plot-wise, it doesn't bring anything new to the series. Uh, it's confusing. It's basically incoherent. There's no snow going on in the high-rise building. We're never told why that is. The pool freezes over. doesn't yeah. make any sense. It's just got a, a bunch of horror imagery that doesn't ever really come together. It's, it's regarded by many people as one of the worst horror sequels, which is funny following Poltergeist 2, which was a decent one. The film finished shooting in June of 1987, and Heather O'Rourke died on the 1st of February 1988, one month after her 12th birthday and four months before the film was released. Tom Skerritt and Nancy Allen were discouraged from giving interviews about the film because the studio was worried about appearing to exploit her death. The film was dedicated to her memory. It's a shame that it wasn't a better film because Heather O'Rourke is really charming through this series. In Poltergeist 3, she looks sick. She also did more before the age of 12 than anyone any one of us has done in our lives. <laughs> and probably will do. <laughs> first things first... Your daughter is here, and she's alive. This development was built on a cemetery. This isn't just a few pissed-off spirits we're dealing with. It's a poltergeist. We just want our daughter back. And then in 2015, we get the remake, uh, Poltergeist, which uh, was had a budget of $35 million and a gross $95.4 million. So it was pretty big hit no it it had i mean it made its money back after you think of all the marketing and everything but typically it it made 40 million dollars 47 million dollars in the u.s i think Mm. and the original film 
33 years before made $76 million, which if you adjust for inflation is $188 million, compared to 47 for this remake. And these days, it was a 3D movie. Those prices, those ticket prices go at a premium. It should have made shitloads more. Mm. Especially when, you know, it's it's not that far removed from um, two years later, it, it came out and broke all kinds of records. It's only marginally ahead of the actual dollar take for Poltergeist 2, the other side as well. And and we're talking about films that are 30 years older. So Poltergeist, I think, has to be considered a failure. I don't think we'll ever be seeing a sequel to the remake. Well, certainly critically it was a failure. It's got a 31% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, you saw, we saw the film together. We, we to the saw the film together with our mothers. With our mums. We're lovely children. <laughs> and uh, I hated it. So did your mum. Yep. And I liked it. And my mum loved it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to go against the grain. I actually enjoy the remake of Poltergeist. Oh. I, I give it three stars. How can you, can you like it? Can you believe it? The original is a better film. Some of the things that I really enjoyed about the original that are not present in the remake or they're glossed over, they're unimportant. But I also think the remake did just enough to present an original take on that same story. Um, there's a lot of the humour is missing from it. Mm. And that's what makes the original so much better. They try to do the same story about the this took seven hours for a, something to move across the floor, but they don't do it in anywhere near the same humorous way. Well, I thought the characters were really stiff and hammy. I thought that the um, parents were feckless and useless. Um, the heart of the original Poltergeist about the mother and daughter relationship is not there. Uh, there's some ridiculous moments in it, like where the brother goes after Carol Ann and the parents both stop short of going into the other side. Neither Her name one is Maddie. Neither one feels compelled to go in after their children. Um, <laughs> it does, you know, really tired things, like makes the family a product of the recession and, you know, things that we've just seen well, at nauseum. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's oh, taking, enough already. It's taking the 80s idea of this yuppie culture and transforming it to the 2015 idea. They're talking about house for, foreclosures and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, which, but it's which not exactly is the, a brainwave, is it? But it, that is just taking... It's not doing anything wrong to take a setting and change the setting. It's not making a big deal of it. It's it doing, does. No, only only as much as the, the 80s version makes a big deal of yuppie culture. Somebody who liked a movie from the 60s might say, oh, this is tired to be talking about the 80s yuppie culture now. You have this cutesy sparring between the two ex-partnered psychics. See, that's actually quite funny. No, it's actually quite blah. The other thing is, I mean... I like, as I said, I like Craig T. Nelson in the original. I really like Sam Rockwell in the remake as well. I think he's a fantastic actor. He's I think really he's good. perfect in this film as well as the, again, the American dad, the typical hardworking American father. Mm. He's he, he is perfectly cast in this movie. His wife can't stand her. Whoever that actress is, I'm sorry, I can't stand her. But Sam Rockwell, I think he's fantastic. Um, I think we're done with Poltergeist 2015. Uh. Yeah, apart from maybe the release and reception. No, I mean 2015. Oh, yeah, no, we're done with that. Okay, so how did the movie do, Damien? Oh, okay, you're talking about the release and reception. (laughs) Yes, Ryan photographed an extraordinary episode on a case in Redlands. That's right. It was a child's toy. A very small matchbox vehicle just rolled seven feet across a linoleum surface. The duration of the event was seven hours. Seven hours for what? For the vehicle to complete the distance. Of course, this would never register on the naked eye. But I have it recorded on time-lapse camera. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. 
Poltergeist was released on June the 4th, 1982, onto 890 screens, so it had a wide release straight away, as you'd expect for a film that has uh, Steven Spielberg's involvement. Charted third in the box office behind the brand new Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan and Rocky III. It grossed $6.9 million that first weekend, went on to gross $76.6 million domestically, making it the 8th highest grossing film of 1982, so very successful commercially. Anytime I think a horror movie makes it into, what, the top 20 movies of the year is pretty special. So probably the best indicator of Poltergeist popularity was that it remained in the box office top 10 for 9 consecutive weeks, and remained on relatively wide release for 5.5 months. Which doesn't happen often these days. Five and a half weeks might be the amount of time that a film usually gets. The film currently holds an 88% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes from 56 reviews and was nominated for three Academy Awards for Best Sound Editing, Best Visual Effects and Best Original Score. It also won the Saturn Award for Best Horror Film, beating out a previous subject of this podcast, John Carpenter's The Thing. Vincent Camby of the New York Times enjoyed the film but could not distinguish which director did what during filming. He wrote his review sounding like he thought Spielberg may have been the major creative force, however, saying, Steven Spielberg has preserved the wonderment of childhood while growing up to make the sort of movies he always loved as a child, but bigger and better and far more imaginative. He's a brilliant technician who still has doubts about the dark. Poltergeist is like a thoroughly enjoyable nightmare, one that you know that you can always wake up from, and one in which, at the end, no one has permanently been damaged. It's also witty in a fashion that Alfred Hitchcock might have appreciated. Offhand, I can't think of many other directors who could raise goosebumps by playing the star-spangled banner behind a film's opening credits. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times also loved the film. This is the movie the Amityville Horror dreamed of being. It begins with the same ingredients, a happy American family living in a big, comfortable house. It provides similar warnings of doom, household objects moved by themselves, the weather seems different around the house than anywhere else, and it ends with a similar apocalypse. Spirits take total possession of the house and terrorise the family. But Poltergeist is an effective thriller, not so much because of the special effects as because Hooper and Spielberg have tried to see the movie's strange events through the eyes of the family members instead of just standing back and letting the special effects overwhelm the cast along with the audience. Interestingly, Ebert points out that the villains in Poltergeist are the same as in Jaws, the real estate developers, the bureaucracy. So one wonders if Spielberg had a bad experience. Moving on from contemporary reviews, the reputation of Poltergeist has probably only been enhanced in the last three and a half decades. It's been named among the best horror movies by a whole raft of critics, magazines and now websites, including Empire Magazine, number 35, Thrillist, number 30, Vulture, number 24, The Atlantic, number 10 and High Consumption. Rotten Tomatoes ranks at the 85th best reviewed horror film of all time, with an adjusted score of 93.213%, just ahead of 88th rated American Werewolf in London, another one of our previous podcast projects. The Thing ranks number 98, Suspiria number 60, and Don't Look Now at number 29, so all the horror movies that we've done there. We're getting there. (laughs) So we'll get to number one soon. Uh, Number one, interestingly, was Get Out. Oh, really? Yeah. Moving on from Poltergeist, Consequence of Sound named Poltergeist 3 as the 13th worst horror sequel of all time, but did mention that Poltergeist 2, The Other Side's Kane, the Preacher, was one of the most underrated villains in horror cinema. And finally, Junkie judged cinema's scariest houses on a scale of kind of from kind of haunted to nope, giving it a quite haunted rating and saying it's quietly 
terrifying and ultimately gets under the skin. Mm, interesting. So, Damien, it's going to be a little tricky to do the quiz this Well, month. I think we give it a go because I can't lose. <laughs> All right, <laughs> let's I'm give not, it a go. I'm not having a good uh, run of it lately, so if I get <laughs> one right, I win. If you get none right, you win. You I, showed up. Yeah. That, ooh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so, okay, uh, what film are Diane and Steve watching when they are smoking a joint in bed? I don't know. Easy Rider? <laughs> a guy named Joe. I don't even know what that is. It's got... Uh, you can see the actor who's in that film. A is guy named Joe. Catherine, Spencer Tracy. Spencer Tracy. Yeah. Sounds like Humphrey Bogart movie. I'm a guy named Joel. Okay, uh, so when Dr. Marty Casey's face starts to peel off in the mirror, whose hands are actually pulling the face off? Spielberg? Yes! I win! <laughs> that scene, um, in terms of the special effects, that scene doesn't work for me very well. No, you can see that it's a rubber face. Oh, so obviously, yeah. yeah. It's still gross, though. The it's idea still, of, you know... Yeah, it's still gross, but I feel like, um, what was it, a year before American Werewolf in London, the, the, the makeup special effects were so much better. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The famous line there here has clearly been ADR'd in post-production. What does the actress Heather O'Rourke actually say? Oh, I didn't know she said something different. It's close, but it's a, you can see that it's off. They've come... She says, they're all here. They're all here. Okay. And the original does that line really well, and the remake does that line really badly. <laughs> yeah. She sounds evil when she says it in the, in the, in the remake. Poltergeist was nominated for three Oscars, but lost in all categories to another film, which was... Oh, hang on. Let me see what it was. Uh... It was, uh... okay, best sound editing, best visual effects, best original score. I would say that film was E.T. Certainly was. <laughs> Were real skeletons used in the pool sequence when Diane falls in, and if so, why? Um, I'm going to say no, just because that would be creepy. Yes. Whose skeletons? Well, uh, they were cheaper than making prosthetic ones, so they bought them from a medical centre. Right. Mm. Okay. Which actress auditioned for the role of Carol Ann and didn't get it? Uh, ooh, Jodie Foster? No, um, this actress was in another Jodie Foster film. would have been quite a bit too old for that movie <laughs> at that time. <laughs> uh, this actress did um, get a start this year in another big film that we've brought up many times in this podcast. In 1902, Drew Barrymore. Yes. Yeah, okay. So she was, uh, yeah, E.T. Okay, true or false, both Dominique Dunn... She was in Dunn... E.T., wasn't she? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, true or false, uh, both Dominique Dunn and Heather O'Rourke are buried in the same cemetery. True. Yes, they are buried in the Pierce Brothers Westwood Village Memorial Park and Mortuary in Los Angeles. Other notable stars who are buried there include Truman Capote, Farrah Fawcett, Burt Lancaster, Dean Martin, Walter Matthau and Marilyn Monroe. Uh, True or false, a real Indian burial ground was unearthed in 1969 during the construction of a supermarket in Agora Hills, the Los Angeles suburb where Poltergeist would film in 1981. True. Yes, it is. Isn't that weird? That was strangely specific if it was false. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I got really inventive with that question. All right, Damien. Star rating? Uh, four stars. Yeah. And uh, just for posterity, three for the remake, two and a half for Poltergeist 2, the other side. And I can't accurately rate Poltergeist 3. Well, I went four and a half stars. I think it's a film that manages to be scary, funny and moving in a spectacular fashion. It dared to move the traditional ghost story out of the Dark Ages into modern suburbia. There's some great subtext about what it meant to live in the uh, Reagan era and the effect of television on our culture. It has great effects, convincing performances, a memorable score and a fascinating production history. 
All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of Celluloid Junkies. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. And in November, we're going to release an episode on Ken Russell's controversial 1971 film, The Devils. We'll see you then. See you later. Stephen loved Chainsaw. Yeah. Well, it's obvious. It's obvious. uh, That was a technical experience. You were there. You saw. I mean, we had spinning rooms. Yeah, I watched that. That was amazing. Yeah, that was. An entire set of a room that would be on a a sort of turning gurney so that everything got sucked into the closet. And and and, and then pulled the little girl's bedroom out and put put the parents' bedroom in for Joe Beth to go up the wall. Right, right. On the ceiling. And there was a luxury to that, though. It was was the first, um, uh, like, 90-day schedule. Wow, 90 days for one movie. One of the the most fun scenes that I uh, had, uh, the most fun I had in that was doing one, one shot that is more like a magic trick than a special effect. And it's where the, the chairs stack up on the table. Oh, yeah. To, to so get... how'd you do it? Oh, okay, well, it... it uh, okay, so... Camera's so on the Joe, kitchen table. Everybody's the, there. Right. Okay, so Joe Beth picks uh, Heather up and, and puts her on a part of the kitchen sink. And the chairs are spread out right. around the, the table. And then she goes over to get the 409 bottle. And so there is a, a pre-constructed stack of chairs with two guys, two, two special effects men, right beside the camera. And then there were six other effects people waiting in closets underneath the counter. And so started shooting, and it took four seconds for everyone to pull the chairs out, run into other rooms. So two guys come out and put the, the assemble stack on the right. table and then make a dash out the back way. It's a misdirection, classic yeah. magician's trick. So you pan off of that, you go with her, whoop, go back, and then come back, and everything's all in place without a cut. And dailies, um, it sounded like a cattle stamp. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like, you know, turn the sound down because it... Now, you must have learned a lot from the studio experience and from the Spielberg experience. Oh, I learned a lot about... I learned everything I knew about special effects or everything. I mean, that was my introduction into ILM yeah, and, and also just a look and a, a behavior and the characters that, that go along with a film like this that is, that is a, a mainstream film that is measured mm-hmm. than, than I was used to. You were used uh, to screaming. Uh, to yeah. Gentle middle class family taken, the Norman Rockwell household taken to hell. And, 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 and they're seeing that it's real. Mm-hmm. And that it's really, and of course it's undeniably real when we hear the girl's voice come out of the TV. Dun, 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 dun.